Welcome to the Adventure Audio Podcast. This is part one of our 2021 highlight show. We are going to bring this to you in three or four parts, depending on how that kind of works out in editing. We're going to try and keep them not too long, but we're going to take out the most inspirational bits of some of our awesome, awesome guests from 2021, and hopefully give you a little bit of a kickstart heading into 2022. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by the State Bicycle Company. You can visit them at statebicycle.com. Check them out often. They have stock running through all the time. They've got parts, they've got tools, they've got apparel at statebicycle.com. If you are visiting them and you're checking out, use code ADVENTURE2022. That code's going to be active for the rest of the month. ADVENTURE2022, that's going to give you free shipping anywhere in the United States. The podcast is also brought to you by the Black Bibs, who are home to the now legendary $40 bib shorts. But there's a whole lot more there at the Black Bibs. Check that that's another website uh, and Instagram account that you need to be following and checking regularly because they do limited runs of some really, really cool stuff. But they've got winter apparel out right now. Check them out, theblackbibs.com. Incredible value in cycling apparel. Lastly, the podcast is brought to you by Wheel Science, who you can visit at wheelscience.com. You can use code Adventure Audio for 10% off anything on the Wheel Science website, which they do have stuff in stock. They build high performance wheels for road, cyclocross, gravel, and now mountain bikes as well. And code Adventure Audio is going to give you 10% off. If they don't have something in stock or you're not positive which way you want to go with your wheel build, which is totally normal because it totally depends on what kind of a rider you are, what kind of a bike you ride, what kind of riding you do. Communicate with Peter Coombe from Wheel Science. Check him out a number of episodes ago on the podcast. He has a huge knowledge of all things bicycle wheels and performance. So communicate with him about a custom build at wheelscience.com. Thank you everybody for listening and for tuning in and spending some of your valuable time with us. And we'll be back to you with part two very soon. Brian Atkins was our first guest of 2021. Yeah, he was. That's right. I'm looking at it right now. So Ryan's a Canadian professional runner, obstacle racer, cyclist, just general adventurer. And that was a cool and fun. Yeah. Story. Like, I just remember uh, him doing the Everest thing, you know, on foot. Yeah, local ski area in Eastern Canada. Like to me, that was just that's the clip I wanted to use. Yeah, yeah. kind of on a whim and like it's like a COVID challenge, but running, running and Everesting. I think he ended up running fifty something kilometers. So it was a ultra run also, and uh, and set the world record, which I think has been beaten by a couple of minutes since. Um, But I wouldn't be surprised if Ryan turned his attention back to it at some point. But just an absolutely incredible athlete. Yeah, yeah, he really got after it, and I think his uh, his partner is, is got, gets after it as well. Yeah, they're kind of a, a dynamic duo. Yeah, of obstacle racing, I think they're both yeah. world champions. Uh, yeah. Just very recently, just here this past fall. So here's a oh, little wow. blurb of our very first chat of 2021 with Ryan Atkins. Great. So <laughs> did you, uh, you know, with Pete and I have noticed that, you know, during during this uh, pandemic, you know, a lot of athletes are, have just become really creative and, you know, they, maybe they can't compete with other people, but they've competed with themselves doing, you know, lots of Everesting um, attempts on, on the bike. And so it sounds like you did an Everesting attempt running. I'd love to hear yeah, a little bit and, about and, that. And when, yeah, when did you do that? And sort yeah, of on a whim. That's, a, that's, almost, incre- which is that's incredible. That's <laughs> incredible. That's incredible. 
I think I did that in June. I want to say it's it's. I think sometime in the in the summer. Um, yeah, I always I was kind of thinking like, oh, everything would be really cool to do. Um, and then I'd kind of like scoped some local hills. I found one that was pretty good over at uh, the ski hill. That's like ten minutes from my house. And then in the morning, I just kind of woke up and drove over there and uh, started running up and down the mountain. Um, I just kind of had a bag full of like water bottles and stuff at the bottom. And then um, like about three hours into it, I was I was like, I think I'm on like record pace. So I just kind of kept kept going at the same pace and um, and I. I set the record that day for the fastest ever staying on foot, which is pretty cool. Um, and that was the fastest non unsupported. I forget how it's called. There's like assisted and unassisted right. on foot because some people like, like you can run up the mountain and then you can like get driven back down. as like, oh, unlike wow. on a bike where the fastest way down is just the bike down. Right. If you're on foot, you could like take a chairlift down and you can get driven down or some people, even like get people to drive bikes up the hill and then they ride bikes down the hill. So I, yeah, I heard I that somebody did that and had down. a faster time. And then he said, but they cycled down and I thought, well, what did he, did he have like 40 bikes up there? I didn't really understand how that worked, but, but, um, I know, yeah, it, you're... Seemed, it, it seemed pretty convoluted to me. I was like, oh, I'm just going to make it simple and just run down every time. <laughs> well, when I started thinking about the gradient of the hill, like it's a whole different, like when we talk about it in a cycling context, we obviously, the, the gradient is super important and it isn't running too, but you can go, you can actually go quite a bit steeper if you're on foot Yeah, because there's a point where yeah. you just can't turn pedals anymore. Right. So yeah, did, totally. did you know that was the hill or did you yeah, really consider anything else? Idea. I had a pretty good idea. Cause I was kind of like based on my research and I knew that like for going uphill around a 30% gradient would be the fastest, but I know I knew if I'm running downhill, like about a 20% gradient would be faster and a bit easier on the legs. Yeah. Um, right. So I kind of split the difference in the hill I was on average 26 and uh, it was perfect. It was like really my legs like weren't totally fried by the end, um, but it was steep enough that I could kind of climb at a good rate. And uh, yeah, it was awesome. So. You didn't have anybody there helping pace you at the end the last little bit? Yeah. So I had, my wife came over and oh, great. I had That's some great. friends show up and they kind of like, I was like out there going up the hill and I was texting. I was like, hey, you want to come by and like hang out because I'm really bored. <laughs> and so uh, they brought over like, I think they brought over a beer and I was nice. drinking IPA uh, on the last few laps, which was nice. like going down really nice. I got And um, had, yeah, some a bit of pacing, but uh, it was yeah. just nice honestly having like the feeds at the bottom because it like it takes a lot of time to like like rustle through your stuff and find like your food every lap um not a lot of time but i guess it takes you know 30 to 50 seconds every lap and that kind of sure. adds sure. up a lot so uh that helped near the end yeah how many laps did you have to do to to, to uh, hit it i did th i did 36 laps so <sighs> yeah yeah uh, what, what's what ski area was it uh, is that Sutton? So okay, uh, yeah, yeah, Sutton, Quebec. And yeah. just a steep. You just pick, kind of picked the steep trail and up and down, up and down, or yeah, it was like right underneath the main chairlift. It wasn't sure. the steepest. It wasn't the like shallowest, but there was yep. like a nice kind of like access road that went straight up um, with good footing, and 
yeah, it was about 250 meters of gain per lap. So I just Whoa. hit it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I think I also read that at the end you were ha- having a hard time stomaching stuff, so you were just drinking maple syrup. Yeah, maple syrup and beer was really the ticket. Yeah. At the That's end. like the most <laughs> stereotypical Canadian thing ever. I love it. it That's perfect. great. Our second guest of 2021 was Fergus Liam, who's the marketing manager at Richie Design. And this is a fun chat because I kind of got hooked on his uh, two beers with Richie YouTube show. <laughs> I but like I got that one. Into it. It's great. That's a good, it's a fun watch for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Super fun. Um, former bike courier, just completely obsessed with bicycles, racing bicycles, really involved in the scene in, in uh, California, both from like career culture, fixies, all that kind of stuff and all kinds of racing bikes, but has an encyclopedic knowledge of oh, all yeah. things cycling and all, and of all things, Richie. So just a really cool company and cool heritage. So yeah, here's a little bit of our chat with Fergus. COVID will trickle down. Now you can't have an inner tube or something. So, so um, we'll be facing that, but we have, uh, I think we'll have two frames available, new frames available this year. And so um, one is kind of an evolution of a previous frame. And then we have another all new frame that Tom's working on. Um, so pretty excited to, to get those. and see those hit the market and uh how so far it seems like our last two frames two to three frames have done really well that's very exciting um as far as sponsorship goes uh i think the last team that we the last pro team that we sponsored was uh well after wanty um locally would have been uh either smart stop or astellas Okay. And the tough part is you really don't get much return on, on sponsoring pro teams anymore. Yeah. Um, though a, a quick anecdote is uh, we sponsored this ProCon team, um, R- Rompot. And, oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Another, one of their, the um, what's his name? Ben Schiff. He's a trackie, you know, and he was in the break in Dutch Classic you know, pretty much all day. And the first thing you notice are his bars. He's riding these little, like, you know, maybe 36 mil bars and they got this weird kink in them. Where like, and I was like, oh, those aren't ours. And sure enough, it gets into like, like Cycling Weekly or something. And we got all of this attention because he wasn't riding our bars. So it was like kind of cool, but at the same time, kind of like, eh, whatever, you know, like, Again, like coming from the track, like I get it, like that's fine with me, but um, not sponsor correct. So we, we definitely got our name in, in a few articles because of that. Uh, but ba- basically try to transition how we support writers and looking for more writers who kind of share a rich ethos. So um, individual writers, and I think that it's more relatable you know it's it's hard to relate to uh a chris Froome, but maybe it's easier to relate to you know a ben frederick you know yeah and you you look at the ladder and you're like hey this dude is doing what i'm doing and he's doing these rad things and 
you know, I want to know more. So at the end of January, we spoke with Steve Pucci, who is affectionately known as Pooch, who you insisted that we have Pooch on. And I was so glad you did. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Great. He's a big mentor of mine. You know, without Pooch, I never would have made it as a bike racer for sure. So really, you thought that it was that definitive? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's helping me put my tires on straight, put put the skewers on the right side and put my helmet on straight, all that kind of stuff. But and yeah, he's been helping yeah. with people with stuff like that for generations now in, in yeah. the mass cycling scene, right? Yeah, a lot of people appreciate Steve Pucci, a lot of people. And uh, I am certainly one of them. And it was, yeah, it was a pleasure to have him on. And he's a, just a, a, a great old friend of mine. And, you know, I love him so much. Yeah. Yeah, Pooch is awesome. So here's a little bit of our chat with Steve Pucci. Hmm. I remember... One time, Tyler. Now, I don't know. This is in the day a little bit. They used to, mm-hmm. you know, tubular tires. You know what a tubular tire is? Pete, you know, <laughs> a tire that you glue on. I remember Tyler coming in the day before a race into my shop. And he's like, oh, man, Pooch, I need a new tire. Okay, here's a tire. Uh, but you, you have to glue it on. I'm sorry, I don't have time to glue it on. You're going to have to glue it on. <laughs> it, 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 we used FastTac at the time. If you know oh, what yeah. that, it's yeah. a it's a tube about as big as a tube of toothpaste. So it's a you know it's a it's a good size. It's not that one of the little tubes that you would get. I said, here's some glue. Put some in the rim. Put some in the tire. Put the tire on. Put a little air in it. Straighten it and inflate it. All right. That's all you have to do. It's not that complicated. You should know how to do this. Do you remember this style? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> So he goes home. He lives a half an hour away. He goes home. He comes back in like four hours. Pooch, I ran out of glue. I'm like, the, the, the tube was enough glue to glue on five tires. He <laughs> ran out of glue halfway through. He's got stuff sticking to his face. He's got the ball bearings from the floor stuck in his hair. His, his clothes are from wiping the glue off his clothes around glue and it, it's, it, was, it was a classic point of uh, all right next time I'll just do it next time I'll just do it <laughs> uh, the two yeah goes. yeah you helped me a lot in those early years and yeah <laughs> I was kind of like picking me up and dusting me off and, and uh, <laughs> kind of could politely kind of pointing me in the right direction but yeah. <clears throat> well, we, we had some laughs I'll say that yeah, we had a lot of laughs, a lot of laughs. Laughs. It was a fun. It was a good group. Your your kids were a good group. Were they? Yeah, you your kids were good. I mean, you you kids were young, you know. Um, yeah. I I taught before I was in the shop. I taught in in, in junior high and high school, so I sort of was semi familiar with, you know, punks like you guys. Yeah. The, uh, um, but it was the first time. We had, you know, we had a really a genuine elite team, with, which with with elite, with as it turns out, elite athletes. Which at the time you you're not sure of that, but you know that there's some the kids are good, but you don't know how good they end up being elite athletes. So we we've, we've had three or four really legit elite teams over the years. Your team, um, Tim Johnson's team, came. Yeah, Tim Johnson, you know, yeah, probably. 
what, six or eight years after after you had moved on, you were in the big show, and they came yeah. on, and yeah. he uh, uh, he had a great run. I mean, he had a good run with the team. Sure did, yeah, sure did, and still still is doing great things. Yeah, we had the distinction during his time. If you you remember, he got a bronze at the World Championships in cross. Yeah, this is Tim Johnson. Yeah, yeah. This was around. 2000, it might have been 99, it was around then, mm-hmm. he brought over um, Bart Wellens, who, who got the gold, Tommy Van Oppen, who got the silver. So we had the gold, silver, and the bronze in cross racing for the club the whole summer. So it was, so they were fast. Larissa Connors, we chatted with in early February. So Larissa was is like, I mean this affectionately, is like interviewing a ping pong ball. <laughs> that was a great conversation. Yeah. Amazing, amazing energy. Just one mm-hmm. of one of my favorite people that we had on. Uh, within minutes, I knew that it was going to be unlike any other interview I think that we had had. Uh, but I mean that in a great way. Yeah, I enjoyed our conversation. That was fun. Yeah, she's super, super cool. So here's a little bit of our chat with Larissa. Um, how I got started with the cycling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, hey, I know you I went to UC come, Davis, right? Yeah, well, I've come full circle in a lot of ways in my life, which I don't know if this is a theme that other people experience in our lives, but, like, I was born in Santa Rosa, and there's there's these mountain bike trails in Santa Rosa called Annadel State Park, and every oh, yeah. day I would get on my hybrid road-slash-mountain bike, and my sister and I would try to clean this one trail uphill, Spring Creek Trail, and every day... We'd get a little closer and a little closer. And the day that I made it without putting a foot down, I took my allowance and I bought a Gary Fisher mountain bike. And I thought I was so cool, yes. but I didn't really like go fast. So we would go mountain biking. And the first time I clipped in, I didn't know that you could loosen the cleats. So every time oh, I yeah. needed to stop, I just fall over. And there's this trail called Rough Go. It's called that because rough. And uh, I would just fall over, over and over and over again. And I'd just be covered in bruises. And my sister wouldn't let me ride in front of her because. She didn't like watching me fall over all the time. <laughs> so so then then I didn't really know about racing, but I went to UC Davis. I started racing road bikes because that's heck of fun. And then yeah. um, I thought like, oh, I want to race road bikes in Europe. That'd be so cool if I could be on the national team, all that stuff. But we moved to Orange County because my husband got a job designing bikes that felt bicycles, which is so cool. And so cool. there's like Super seven cool. bazillion red lights down there. You can't just ride your bike. You have to stop a lot. So then I was like, well, this feels dangerous. So I started mountain biking and I accidentally got really good at mountain biking and then did like this whole professional mountain biking career thing. And now we're back in Santa Rosa and I'm mountain biking on the trails. I grew up riding. Oh, wait, I forgot the part where I was a marathon runner and now I'm running again. So I've come full circle. Wow. Full, full that's, circle. That's great. So death is imminent. <laughs> or does no, the circle repeat itself like am i going to become a road racer again yeah exactly that's and probably I bet, some yeah. gravel probably some gravel because like revolutions like the circle re- revolves yeah well i did the gravel Maybe thing it's like a figure eight I- i'm still doing the gravel thing let's be honest you know because gravel is a lifestyle everyone's always doing gravel it is a lifestyle yeah pete and i talk about it a lot we we uh 
we're fans of of, uh, of the gravel scene, and it's it's just fun. It's yeah, it's the graveling, yeah, yeah, and it's just fun to watch and see. Uh, I mean, every everybody that does it is happy, really. Oh yeah, even if you're in last place, you're still having sure. a great time. Totally, the, the stoke is super high. Yeah, yeah. I uh, so, I sorry, I read a, something on Taylor Finney who was there at um, what was it? The Unbound. What's the name of the race called? Yeah, yeah, Unbound. Unbound. Yeah, and uh, I think he had like three flat tires in the first whatever twenty miles, and so then he ended up just riding it with uh, you know all different ages and abilities, and he had the best time. And you know I thought that was really a good story. You probably yeah, like enjoyed your day it goes more bad, right? doing that than racing and being in lots of pain. <laughs> for sure, for <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. And he probably so stopped at you... the aid stations and ate the apple. What are they called? The when it's like a pocket with apples in it, like empanadas. A, like, a, like a strudel? Oh, oh yeah. He ate the apple empanadas, which you know what I learned an important life lesson two years ago. Stop for the apple empanadas. It's worth it. Uh, February 16th, we had TJ Eisenhart on. So TJ. also a little bit off the beaten path. Like TJ is one of what seems like sort of a growing faction of cyclists who are leaving the world to our ranks or even like continental ranks in favor of a career that is a little more uh what's the right way to put it open down open, open and down yeah. to earth yeah down yeah, to yeah, earth yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. he's racing bikes and he's painting a lot and he's a he's like a bike racer slash artist and yeah. has carved out a niche for himself doing that but uh tj's awesome and weren't you actually also on tj's podcast i think yeah i was i was i think originally you were on his right. podcast yeah. yeah i've had a couple of conversations conversations with him i've never met him but i feel like i know him i feel like he's like another brother yeah really nice yeah. guy very open and honest and uh yeah i really like what he's doing he seems like a lot of gravel riders he seems really happy yeah you know? he seems real really really happy Road racing's hard. It's, you know, you get over to Europe, you know, in the continental ranks or world tour ranks, it's tough. It's, a, you know, it's full on and all the time. And, you know, it's a, it's a hard a rocket, life to live. He's, hard life he's to still live. getting results. Yeah. But he's still doing great. Yes. Yeah. But he seems just as happy if he DNFs or if he podiums, which is yeah. just great. For sure. Right? And, you know, it's a great story is he was the first one to stop when uh, Ted King crashed and uh, I think he smashed his collarbone and the, at the Big Sugar in Arkansas. So that was uh, yes, he was TJ's stop for him. So that you know I just shows his TJ, character. TJ, TJ Floyd Landis and uh, yeah. and Ted King in like the back of a pickup truck riding around. So yeah, there's, <laughs> there's yeah, but that was a great interview. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, TJ's awesome. So here's a little bit of TJ Eisenhart. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with cycling, TJ? Like, how, I, I think I took from that podcast with David, you, your, was it your father and your brother that also were cyclists that got you yeah. into it? Yeah. Uh, so actually, we're a baseball family. Uh, oh, like awesome. Purebred. Like, if I wasn't a cyclist, I would definitely have been playing baseball. Like, my brother was in uh, college. Uh, and uh, my brother was 16 years older. So like David said in the podcast I did with him, like bro my brother kind of set the path for me to kind of nice. go down. And my dad, he was heavily involved with sports his whole life and uh, played football in college. And uh, then 
started he's now part of also the major league baseball association's foundation so like we've always been involved with sports and i've been involved and then how i got involved with cycling was my brother was actually serving in lds mission in spain at the time and uh it was during 2001 and you guys were racing the tour in the pyrenees and uh i was able to uh we were able to watch you guys as a family and it's cool I don't remember details, but uh, when I look back on that time in my mind, you, I see more colors and like feelings and like like this. Uh, like I remember being in the crowd. I remember feeling that excitement. I remember seeing like colors flash. You know, feeling that atmosphere. Being at the end of the podium where you'd have the cheap little bucket yellow hat they'd throw out. You know, like I remember having those experiences, which then turned us into cycling you know enthusiasts and then every year we'd watch the tour every july and then you know got a trek when i was uh 10 years old and uh because i was just begging my brother and dad to get me a bike because they would go out and ride and uh they were like all right we'll get you one we think you can you know hang with us and uh at 10 they got me one and it was just pure you know once i got it like at eight years old, I knew I was going to be, I knew I, this is what I wanted to do. But then at 10 years old, I was like, it was funny. People would tell me like, oh, you need to have a plan B or you need a, you know, but it was like, no, you're, this is what I'm going to do. Like, and it's so funny and crazy to me to hear people and they'll be in college or even they just, they're trying to figure out what they want with life for their passion mm -hmm. and love. And it's like, for me, it's bizarre. Cause I, I found it, you know, at eight you know, and knew that's what I was just going to be in. And uh, it never was like a look back or like a question of it was just like, all right, well, how do we get there? And then my parents were crazy supportive where it was like, my dad would then was doing research on how he can get me to graduate early, you know, what classes I need to take? All right, what do I need to do? What races do I need to get in? And then eventually, my parents were like, even officials for races, because they were like, hey, we'll, we might as well get paid to be here while we're <laughs> watching yeah, right. the race. Wow. So, yeah, that's kind of our family's history. And now it's like, it's now just been, it's cool because now it's gone throughout our whole family of cycling's just now the culture. So it's that now like a European vibe where it's now in our family and it's bred into it where, you know, my nephews are just addicted to riding at the mountain bike park. So I love getting them like stuff or my brother or my dad or brother-in-law loves mountain biking now. So uh it's pretty cool you know what started as a competitive thing now is like it's just so cool it's just now in, you know woven into our family's history awesome it's great yeah it's awesome that you too for. supportive parents oh go ahead Pete. dude yeah i mean my parents i you know i owe them every still like there's not a day yeah. my parents have ever said to me like you need to get a real job you need to go to school you need to it's literally just trusting me and helping me any way I can to achieve my dreams. I mean, my dad would, yeah. when I was training full gas, my dad would sit in the car behind me and follow me on those six hour days, like just because he loved doing it. And, you know, at the beginning I was like, Oh pops, you don't need to do that. Like, I feel bad. Like you don't need to, but it's like, that's how he still like was around me. And so we still, you know, uh, we're bonding. And it also, I eventually realized, like, you know, 
it took away my ego because then there was no excuses to not complete the training because there was a car behind me with food and clothing. So they've always been, you know, even with me leaving, like now my dad's just so helpful with my art or anything, you know, it's just they, yeah, completely where you, it's funny, you just always realize, man, I'm screwed. I'm so into debt with these people with kindness and love. You're just like, I'm never, I can never repay all the the love that they've given me. And that's why I just try to spread as much, I guess. You can't repay it. You have to pay it forward to the next generation, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, and it's like I, with my daughter, it was the biggest awakening. The fact that it's just normal. Like when you, <laughs> you just love your kids that much. Like I just now know like how much my parents love me from having a daughter because then you realize, oh yeah, you also can't disappoint them because my daughter can never disappoint me. You know what I mean? Like you just, once you have that and you're like, oh yeah, now I realize why he would sit in the car for hours or why, you know, just the simple things. And I've tried my best to like, <laughs> I remember when we first had our daughter, I was calling my parents like a lot and just like saying, so like just apologizing, like just because <laughs> Yeah, it's because I was like, man, you guys were up all night. You guys were doing this like this is crazy. But yeah, I, I think a strong support system is always crucial. So at the start of March, we had Celine Yeager on for the second time. We had interviewed Celine pre-pandemic. So right. in February of 19 or sorry, in February of 20. So if, in my mind, if you spoke to somebody before the pandemic, it might as well have been a hundred years ago. That's how much the world has changed. <laughs> yeah. So, but um, I've been listening Celine, to Celine on podcasts and been writing, reading things that she's been writing in Bicycling Magazines for, for I don't know, over a decade for sure. So one yeah, of my she's great. And we'll, we'll have her on in 2022 as well. Yeah, she's, she'll, a bit she'll of, she's like the encyclopedia of cycling. You know? It's awesome all things training and stuff yeah. so and, yeah. and one of the more certainly one of the more inspirational people that that uh that we've had on because she's done okay. so much stuff and is just always finding new things to do and it's just an important part of the community so here's a little bit For of sure. Jaeger. so yeah <laughs> what have you been up to since really I mean... no really i was uh, you know we were talking a little bit before that one of the things that has been really really cool about this time, you know, this time being as terrible as it's been yeah, has also yeah. given a lot of gifts to people, you know, who have been, who've remained healthy and such. And just, we had, you know, we took up stand up, stand up paddle boarding, which I had not nice. really done. I love it. I love so it. Cool. So cool. I love it. Like it's the moment I float out in that water, something just comes over me. Yeah. And we have like herons and bald eagles. I'm like, this is amazing. And yeah. you know, there are a lot of places I don't, I'm not, I'd hate putting my bike on my car to, to ride. Like I, I just don't yeah. do that. But Same. we live by like three different lakes with mountain bike trails and stuff by them or other dirt roads, you know, by Hawk Mountain. I will put my bike and my paddleboard in my car. And now we have a day, right? Like now we'll ride 50 miles or whatever, have some beer, have a sandwich and go out on the paddleboards. And that's like that. I can't think of better living. That's great. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good weekend. Yeah, so we, we discovered that and discovered some just, there's this place called Jake's Rocks, which is an Imba build in the northwestern corner of the state, which 
I've never been anywhere like it geographically. Like the the rocks are as big as like an apartment building, and they build them over it. And it is phenomenal. It's so, so uh, beautiful. I saw a bunch of pictures that you posted on your Instagram, and if people need to go like go scroll through that and find those pictures, it's I haven't seen uh, anything like that. What never what creates those like geologically like. There's some, it's like it's a it's glacier. Crazy. We're in a glacier formation kind of state here, and I, I'm not 100% sure what those rocks are made of, but it is part of that sort of glacier ridges that just, but they are crazy. And it's, it's all, it's built yeah. so perfectly because I'm not hucking over, a, you know, some of those features, but they have, they have, um, you can easily sort of roll everything and go around it. And it's, it's a, it's a phenomenal place and it has water. So we took our paddleboards and camped and rode our mountain bike. So yeah, it's a, in that way, it's been a really, a really special time. Like I, I, I there's so many things that I'm going to maintain. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Us too. Us too. It's yeah. the family dynamic changes too. Right. Like, which has been, I'm ready for everyone to get cool. the hell out of the house. Let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have, I've been self-employed for a long time, since 98. And, you know, at first it was like, oh, look, everyone's in the house with me. That's great. And now I'm like, they're still here. <laughs> like, they're always know, it's, here. It's, they're still here. It's, it's fine. But I, I am kind of ready to be like, you can all go back to work in school now for a little bit. Give me yeah. my office space back. Um, so have you done any events since mid Unpaved happened, um, which is okay. Yeah, which uh, yeah. A, like a very small version of unpaved, but it was a beautiful day. It was peak foliage, phenomenal weather, and they, you know, we were allowed to have two hundred fifty people, not a thousand. You know, so much smaller, but it was it was so needed, and everybody was so happy, and it was such a perfect day. It, it's really beautiful. That part of Pennsylvania is phenomenally beautiful. You know, it's, it goes through Amish country and into the bald eagle state forest and the, the dirt is perfect even when it's wet <laughs> it doesn't really? stick to any it's perfect dirt like it's that that per, it's better than pavement it's got that little bit of grip you know so you can just let it rip without any fear like seven miles no breaks kind of dirt really really fun so that happened so that was really exciting and another event in pa called the quick in the dead um which is another gravel race happened and that was all in October. Like we kind of opened up again a little bit in the summer and the fall and some events took place, you know, with all the protocols in place, math starts, staggered starts, all that kind of stuff. But what Unpaved did was, dude, I would, I would sign up for that in a heartbeat again, is they had a window where you could start, like a two hour window. So, you know, that morning, That's the great. mornings you're usually like, oh my God, I've got to go to like in the line to the bathroom is like 12 feet long and you can't like none of that. You know, people just were like, so relaxed in the morning like have your have espresso have two yeah you don't make yeah. it by seven it's 705 that's okay you know that was a like that. yeah i loved yeah. it yeah i i wouldn't mind that state staying around event organizers had like that's tough and even the numbers right i mean you build an event based on you know we yeah need, if yeah, the event they make needs money to bring in some money because it, it has to it spend gave, money right yeah yeah but 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 i'll tell you the um uh, the Susquehanna River Valley, who is the the primary sponsor of Unpaved, did not cut their budget for it. They're like, you are working harder to do this than for they they respected that, and he, you know, it was twice as much work for a, a fraction of the people to to meet all those protocols and to do all that stuff. So, 
I'm so grateful that they just, they're like, this is, we're looking the long game. And it was I'm so grateful for that. Brendan Leonard, we had on in the middle of March. That was a fellow Missoulian, right? Missoulian, yeah. Yeah. I said Missoulian? Okay. Uh, Missoulian, Missoulian. Missoulian, okay. Missoulian, yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Missoulian? I think it's Montanan and Missoulian, I think. Montanan, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, He's better known. A lot of people might not know his name but they know what Semi-Rad is. So Semi-Rad's uh, like a cartoon series and Brendan's been a contributor to all kinds of outdoor magazines, Outside Magazine, Adventure Journal. Yeah. He's an ultra runner. He wrote a great book called I Hate Running and You Can't See It's <laughs> right. Tongue in Cheek. He obviously <laughs> loves running, uh, but it's, yeah. it's so, so, so great. And if you don't follow Semi-Rad on Instagram, you're making a terrible mistake. <laughs> so here's a little bit of our chat with Brendan. Yeah, Leonard. great guy. Good for you. Good for you. And then, uh, and then you, uh, I was reading that you, you know, you're a runner up through high school and then you put, put the running shoes away for, I think you said nine years or something like that. Well, yeah, I, I, uh, gosh, when I, I started smoking in college, I smoked a pack of cigarettes a day for like six straight years. And then, okay. 2005 2006 i decided i wanted to try to run a marathon to quit smoking so nice um i did that and that worked which was good uh but then i was like like a marathon just crushed me i was like this is awful you know it was a road marathon and i was running three times a week to like in town you know not trail running um so yeah and then i i was like done done running for the next nine years did a few trail runs here and there, which is fun. But for the most part, it was like my last resort. I didn't really, didn't really dig it that much. So, yeah. So how did it, keep, how did it creep back up to the point of writing a book about it? Yeah. 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 So I got super into climbing, uh, rock climbing. And like I was a uh, contributing editor at Climbing Magazine for a few years. And um, that was just, totally my thing um was just doing a lot of multi-pitch climbing colorado wyoming arizona utah like um all over and just loved it and um a couple things i had kelly cordis the alpinist and writer had sort of in an interview i was doing with him about something uh about the idea of being hardcore had kind of put this idea in my head that it was if you're in the mountains you know, and you're on a climb to keep moving when things are really bad and try to get back to civilization. Um, you know, it's, it's, if you stop and sit down and just give up, you're going to die. So it's pretty, he's, he like kind of said, it's pretty easy to keep moving, but think about ultra marathons when people can just stop at an aid station, sit in a camp chair by a fire and just give up. And he's like, when you're really miserable to keep going in that situation, that's amazing. And it kind of stuck with me. And then, uh, you know, through those years of climbing, I eventually uh, sort of, there's a a climbing accident where a kid fell on a ledge right next to me, uh, partway up Castleton Tower in Utah. And um, that kind of was the beginning of the end of climbing for me. It was like, wow, this is what happens when things do go wrong. Because for, you know, for most of my career, falling and having an accident was such an abstract thing. It was something that happened to other people. Um, 
but uh but after that it was kind of like i think i'm going to take a little break um and then ultra running sort of had been this thing in the back of my mind like <laughs> who are these like crazy people who can do these these races and could i be one of them so that sort of started the journey and um yeah i ran a 50k in 2015 it went okay um i mean i finished you know and then tried a 50 mile race the next year and finished like 30 30 minutes ahead of the cutoff so probably nice. like fifth or sixth from last or whatever and then yeah just kept you're always curious about that 100 mile mark too so um then we did that and uh yeah, it's been it's been interesting because I had spent so much time in the mountains, hiking, running, doing approaches to rock climbs, descending, you know, that um, it to do ultra marathons is almost relaxing because you're like, hey, I'm, the course is plotted out for me. Maybe there's a couple turns where I need to pay attention. But for the most part, every five, eight, ten miles, there's an aid station where I can fill up water bottles and eat Oreos like this is a dream compared to like some of the stuff I'd done in the backcountry, you know, so it's kind of fun. Um, but I was aware of what it was like to have a really, really long day. Um, just because of like things like, uh, like climbing the Grand Teton in a day is something a lot of people do, but it, that was like an endurance event for me, you know, like 14 or 15 hours it took us to get up and down one day. And, um, I always thought, you know, why well, I've kept moving for that long running you know that long is not that big of a stretch so it sort of made sense okay in mid-april we interviewed mark sinnott so mark this That's one fun. ski club yeah. in massachusetts no new hampshire real talent. new hampshire, <laughs> new hampshire produces yeah. real talent uh including both you and mark sinnott so i found on the internet did i send that to you i found a picture of you and mark as like kids Oh, really? Uh, no. He's, yeah. But so since we started the podcast, you thought we should have Mark Sinnott on. And then it coincided very well with the publishing of his most recent book, which is called The Third Pole, which is yeah. definitely one of the best books I read in 2021. For sure. For sure. Amazing. Amazing story. Yeah. He's a. Yeah. Mark and I have known each other since we were probably like six, seven years old. We were on the Wildcat ski team in uh, northern New Hampshire in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. And, yeah. Um, yeah, we had a lot of fun together, gotten, gotten, uh, you know, some good trouble together, just being a uh, little feral kids running around. And, um, yeah, I, I enjoyed him a lot as a, as a kid and to this day. Yeah. He's an ama amazing person and, uh, you know, great, great storyteller as a, as he's, as, as you got to know. Yeah. He's one of the most accomplished adventurers of his generation and mm -hmm. an amazing storyteller. So here's a little bit of Mark Sinnott uh, telling us about the third pole. Um, but he, so he was, uh, uh, you know, obsessed with the, the mystery of Mallory and Irvin and this question of, of who really was the first to stand on the summit of Mount Everest for more than 20 years. And he was part of the expedition in 1999 that found the remains of George George Mallory, and that really, um, you know, was kind of a monumental thing in the history of mountaineering, and, um, and it 
it's a story that you know people who follow this kind of stuff know well um anyways as a result of this history that he has with everest and he went back multiple times and then he eventually climbed the mountain in 2016 and that was you know and this is something i try to touch upon in the book is that was kind of ultimately where it all stemmed from was his own childhood desire to climb the mountain and so he was doing a talk at um at freiburg academy over in maine and then he was hitting me up and saying hey you know you got to come to my talk Hmm. and the truth is that i'm actually pretty burned out on all the climbing stuff and going to climbing talks is like you going to like a talk about the tour de france or something you might be busy that night you know (laughs) um i was like i don't know man and i was kind of blowing it off and he kept hitting me and he was pretty persistent and and then he and then he said, yeah, well, you're going to be a guest of honor and this and that. And I didn't know what that meant, but I was like, well, OK, he's really keen. And then it ended up being a night where, you know, I um, was supposed to do something with my daughter, Lilla, who at the time was 2017. So that's four years ago. She was so she was like 11 or 12 at the time. So I'm like, OK, we'll go to this Everest talk. And so we did, and I, I guess I didn't even really know what it was about, but it was Tom's whole story of Everest, and at a certain point, he's talking about the discovery of, of George Mallory, and he's showing photos, and I'm sitting there, you know, with an 11-year-old girl, and she's looking at this photo of this old desiccated dead body, and I'm thinking, oh my god, you know, what have I done? Like, I mean, This is off the rails. <laughs> at an old dead body. And she's probably never seen anything like that. Most people haven't. It's 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 kind of you know macabre. Um, but anyway, it, it it was a really well done and fascinating talk. And afterward, um, I just I, actually what happened was I was I I was talking. Tom called me afterwards to because he knows I do a lot of presentations. And he said, "Hey, like." beat me up a little bit and critique my talk and we started talking about it and as we did I and I was trying to give him advice on like what I thought would be a great story for him all of a sudden I just started riffing on this idea of of the Mallory Nervin story and what has been written about it and and you know if a journalist wanted to immerse themselves into the story to tell it in that way like new yorker magazine style how would they do that and what would what would it look like and i just started going off on this phone call and i was saying all this stuff to tom and then at a certain point i thought oh wait a second like this is a great idea i could be that guy (laughs) and and then the you know the other you know sort of interesting piece of the backstory is 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 that you know i'm a lifelong climber i started climbing you know basically when i was a kid i've been climbing ever since and mount everest it looms large really i think for a lot of people but especially people who are part of mountain culture and outdoor community and all that but for climbers it's really an iconic thing and um and it looms large in all of our imaginations regardless of what we really think about it 
but what you know on a personal level but as a young person when i first started getting into climbing of course i i was drawn to that i was kind of enthralled by the idea of that's as that's as far as you can go like that's as high as you can climb that's it that's kind of the ultimate and but then as i as i came an, of age as a climber in the 1990s and the whole Everest commercial guiding industry was really growing. Um, the there was this Everest stigma that started to grow up, yeah. which I'm sure you guys know about, and you probably feel a lot of that yourselves. But for me, it, in the '90s, which was when that really started to develop, that was also when I was a young idealistic climber in my 20s, and so me. And a lot of climbers of my generation, but definitely my close peers and the and the people that I climbed with, we all just said, "Nope, that's not it. Um, you know, that's not what this is all about. Um, it's it's not really a worthy objective, and we're not going to go in this direction with our climbing." And so, so instead, I just went out and did all this obscure stuff that no one has ever heard of. Like most of the mountains that I've climbed, no one knows about. <laughs> And they're not sort of significant in that way. And they're only known to people that are kind of like insiders in climbing. And and then eventually became a professional climber. And so as part of that, I'm constantly like telling my stories and I'm writing and 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 like you know, we were talking about doing storytelling about these adventures. And every time I'm doing it, people are asking me, Oh, have you done Everest? Oh, what mm -hmm. do you think of Everest? Oh, hey. Right. And 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 uh and I had to just it's really hard to explain to sort of the layperson the nuances of why someone wouldn't be into that. But I guess what I'm driving at here is deep down underneath all of that, I was still interested and I was still intrigued. And I think even though I wasn't really admitting it to myself, which is interesting because I really do try to go through life with my eyes wide open and to be honest with myself about everything that I possibly can be I I wasn't openly acknowledging the f the fact that I was secretly hoping that someday the opportunity would come up because I was really intrigued and I was really interested in in the whole thing the the the, the whole enterprise um but more than anything what is it like to be that high up Oh boy, Rona McLaughlin. This really started off its chain reaction of events, didn't it? <laughs> With me and the Everest thing for sure. Oh uh, yeah. Um, but this, Rona this was the start for you, Pete. It was, yeah. Or it was close to ground zero. You'd been sure. teasing me for a little while, but I think sure. this was the first time that I said it out loud to somebody that I was gonna that I was gonna try and do it. But Rona McLaughlin, if you don't know, is the world record, still the world record yeah. holder for Everesting. So this is stuck because he did it. I think he did it at the end of March, 2021. Uh, we interviewed him uh, middle to late April of 2021. That's uh, right. But the record stands. He he broke up by nearly 20 minutes, and I don't. I haven't even heard of anybody coming close. Six hours, 40 minutes, 54 seconds, uh, including yeah. a puncture on a 75 kilometer an hour descent. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, just yeah. a real, but a real humble guy, super humble. Totally. I, you know, I really like that about him a lot. And, uh, 
yeah, and I really enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, you know, I'm waiting for the Ronan McLaughlin Everesting bike to come out. You know, remember he had that fairing on the front <laughs> that he made? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. All these different manipulations to his bike and all that. Yeah. I think he, he I think like that might be um, up his alley. Maybe not the whole bike. You could just sell, sell a, a separate it's, custom build kit. It just comes fair. with a fairing and just yeah. the instructions. And a hacksaw. Remove and a, hacksaw. a bunch of your gears. <laughs> yeah. Hacksaw for your just handlebars off, and random stuff. Everything you're not going to use. Yeah, sure. speaking of inspirational, though, Ronan, Ronan's a monster. So here's yeah. a little bit of our chat with Ronan McLaughlin. Oh, yeah. One of the things I, I meant to say was uh, you asked me you know, about the mindset for it. And I, I think it was the second or the first or the second everything I did. I started calculating, well, I'm going to be out here for seven or eight hours. And that seems like a horribly long amount of time on the bike. But what percentage of my life is that? And, you know, at 33 years of age, I started working out, you know, amount of hours in a day, hours in a week, hours in a month and year, and then working out how many hours in 33 years and, and what percentage, seven hours as of that. And that was a rabbit hole that, you know, have, helped me pass about, I think, at least an hour and a half or, or two hours on the bike trying to work that out. And I would need to go back and see if I actually worked out, worked it out correct or not. But uh, that's, you know, just distracting the mind, I think, uh, helps and uh when, when you look That's at fair. it that way it is it is a huge challenge but if you can break it down into something small or or, or look at it as as small as uh and and in, in terms of your whole life then it becomes more manageable in your mind and quite often these things are just a mental challenge rather than relative physical challenge and um for me the the Everest thing is um uh, it's at least equal if at least equal parts mental challenge uh, physical challenge and an eating challenge on a bike um, th those those three it's not it's not just about cycling up and down a hill it's it's hugely about the mental approach to it as well and then just you know fueling on the day and and if you can get your you know it's it's a sub threshold effort if you can get your fueling and your hydration right you can theoretically keep going all day like so that was a you know a, an aspect that I really dialed into as well how many yeah. calories per hour were you eating uh, well, we were sort of focused on, on carbohydrates and I was at least, you know, putting into my, into my mouth 140 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Now that's a lot more than you can probably utilize, but, um, we, I think we estimated, I, I don't have the figures here in front of me now, but we estimated I burned a thousand grams of carbohydrates and, uh, I think it was 400 grams of fats throughout the whole, the whole effort. So I would need, we need to pull up the figures again to be exact, but. Uh, and, and in terms of kilojoules burned, it was 6,623 or, or something like that. So it was a big enough day. Wow. Out, yeah. wow. That's incredible. <laughs> That's wow. so, somebody, somebody explained it as 76 intervals, 76 four minute intervals at 340 watts, which was the best way I've heard it explained yet. That, that that sort of put it into perspective for me and I, I had Man, done that's the effort. <laughs> at 340 watts? Yeah. Wow. Was, Good you know, for you. Was, Good for you. Sometimes, like, but, um, sure, sure. Yeah, roughly, roughly speaking, it was 340. So you just kind of, you hit the turnaround on the bottom and you just try to like look at your numbers and on the way up, you just try to I, around you there, know, would I, you? I didn't really use a parameter for pacing on the day. I, I sort of used Good. it as a limiter. Um, yeah, and I'm more sort of went off feel, uh, and and that can be a little bit dangerous. In that, at the start, when you're feeling super, you're on a super lightweight bike, 
and you're really flying up the climb, you know, and I was sort of using VAM as another metric and I was seeing 2200, 2300 VAM. I was like, whoa, this is, you know, at that point you're like, this is amazing, but it's not sustainable. I need to back off a little bit. So I was sort of, it was a combination of power, heart rate, uh, VAM, but then most of all, just, you know, feeling, you know, what, how did I personally feel? And is this sustainable for seven hours was the question I had to keep asking myself. And, um, you know, and if you look at the, um, the power file for it or the Strava file, you know, the first half was, I actually, I actually did the first half of the Everesting. Um, so base camp, which, which is part of the, there is a challenge for base camp as well. A, a week beforehand, I'd, I'd broken the record for the base camp challenge. I'd done three hours and 15 minutes and, and the, oh, wow. and the actual full Everesting ride, I did the the base camp uh, distance in three hours and twelve minutes. Um, so yeah, wow. like there was. Wow. I definitely I went fast at the start. Uh, conditions were more optimal at the start, uh, and I've sort of had this sort of mental battle since. Well, did I overcook it at the start? But I'm fairly confident that I didn't because I never really, I never really died off towards the end. Like even at the end, my slowest laps were still my slowest laps on the actual Everesting bike were still faster than most of my fastest laps from last year's Everesting. So, you know, it was, um, it's one of those that it's very difficult to go much slower on that climb because it's so steep. You just have to get up it and, you know, to keep your balance, you have to put out a certain power. You, you really need fatigue just to slow you down. Like it's, it's very difficult to ease off, ease off very much on it. So, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, it was, uh, Something that I'm pretty happy with looking back at that fight and seeing seeing uh, everything that all the all the work that went into that sort of paid off in the end up, I guess. Yeah. Thank you everybody for tuning in and listening. Uh, as we always say, the best way to support the podcast is simply by word of mouth using social media. So if you like the episode, please share it, tag us. We love it when we see that. Thank you so much. Uh, if you can subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast platform you find the show, that is also of a great help. We will be back very soon with part two of 2021 Highlights.